David Letterman would say my next guest needs no introduction and I'm very excited to welcome Doug Leone, global managing partner of Sequoia Capital, who has been an early backer of the likes of Apple, Google, Stripe, WhatsApp, Airbnb, but also a lot of European successes like your iPath, Clowner, and uh, GraphCore. And even more exciting, Doug has been the driving force behind Sequoia's internationalization to China, India, and recently Europe, where we're very happy that we did a few deals together. So big welcome, Doug, and thanks a lot for taking the time. So you were actually born in Europe in 1957, I think, in Genoa, and uh, then you moved to the U.S. when you were 11 years old, and now you're coming back to Europe. What excites you about Europe, and why now? I came to look at Europe twice prior to this time, and it felt as if it was too early. I didn't see the growth of the economies. I didn't see the engineers wanting to start companies and so on. And then uh, about 10 years ago, it became a much more globalized world. We all read the book, The World is Flat from, you know, I think 1995. And it took a little while for the world to be as flat as the book had predicted. And we came back to Europe around three, four years ago, and it was clear we should go to Europe. And the main reason we came this time is not because there's investments to be made and so on. It's because we started to notice more and more market leaders coming out of Europe. And at Sequoia, we're really interested in backing market leaders. If someone came to us and said, invest 20 million and we will guarantee you, you will make 40 million in two years, we wouldn't make that investment. We're interested in, in backing terrific founders, backing them for the long term, becoming their business partner 10, 15 years, and emerging on the other side with terrific market leaders as we've done with Unity, UiPath and maybe even Klarna, three European companies. So we started to notice these market leaders, and the decision we had to make was this. Are more and more market leaders going to come out of Europe? And the answer we came up with was yes. Once we knew the question and we came up with the answer, then it was a very easy choice to come to Europe. Great, and if you think about Europe, what kind of sectors excite you where you, can, where you think we can build global market leaders out of Europe? We're interested in fintech. We're interested in, in technology coming out of the Nordics. We're interested in, in technology coming out of the Eastern countries. We're interested in B2B, lots of small businesses, especially in your country. So there's many sectors, but as I answer that, that answer is written in very light pencil because the trick for us is to meet people, keep our ears open and meeting founders as early as we can and expect to be surprised. Great, and I think that's what people love about Sequoia. And maybe to make uh, the question a little easier, given your global experience with very different types of founders, first in the US, then you move to China, then you move to India, and now to Europe. And what I sometimes hear is, you know, founders in China are a little more hungry to achieve things and maybe working a little harder. But if you compare those different founder types, what do you think are the differences of founders in those different clusters? First of all, founders are more similar than different. Founders is the type of people that they can't go to sleep at night because they have a vision to start a company. They probably have experienced the problem, meaning it's not they get together in a room, we've got to start a company, what should we do? They've seen some pain and they're hungry as heck. Those are the traits we see globally. And I would say the Latin American founders are very similar to the US founders. They're very similar to the European founders. Now, then you get into cultural type of differences. In China and in the ASEAN countries, you see the birth 
of the first generation of people that have an opportunity. Maybe we've had an opportunity in America. That generation was the 50s generation, my generation. In Europe, uh, life has been more comfortable for a number of years. In China, it wasn't. Now, having said that, Zoom has sped up life for everybody. So we've seen increased work time for us at Sequoia, for example. We tested and we looked at our own calendar. Since we've been on Zoom, which is 15 months, we're working 30% longer. And so I think things are converging towards the similarities rather than differences. How do you see the strengths and weaknesses of Europe, you know, in this kind of global technology world? Strengths, very smart people. Strengths, good schools, a lot of STEM graduates, a renewed hunger in the last five, seven years. Weaknesses, and I'm not sure it's a weakness, it's an opportunity for people like us. Europe is a decentralized place. When we were launching a team, I told my partners, ideally we want four brothers that speak four languages in four different countries because you can't just live in London or in Berlin. You have to travel and you have to go to a whole bunch of different countries. So Europe is tactically not easy to attack. And if you're like us and like you, and you want to get there as early as possible, you have to really hustle. You can't wait for someone to give you a call because by the time someone then will give you a call, that company has already raised a seed and maybe a series A. So you have to hustle and hustling in a decentralized fashion, in a decentralized community or continent is not very easy. So while some people would call it a weakness, I don't view that as a weakness. I view that as an opportunity if you get it right. Because if things are easy to do, then you're going to have incredible competition. And so that would be the main thing that makes Europe very different than the U.S., if you will, and very different than China or, for that matter, India. That's a good point. I mean, uh, the, the very decentralized character, that's also why we've built Visionaries Club in a way that we're trying to have only entrepreneurs on board who are actually strong founders in their local countries and can be like a Trojan horse in terms of deal sourcing because it's very decentralized. And if you look at Germany, we don't have the one big city or the one big cluster. Some of the good companies like Central comes out of Augsburg. I'm sure you've never heard about the city before we came across the company. I think the other advantage is that European founders, by definition, cannot be ultra-local. If you are in France and you only think about France, you're probably not going to build a huge business. By definition, you have to think now of the EU, continental Europe. You have to think of the UK since Brexit. How is that different? How am I going to go there? And so... All these difficulties provide opportunities for the better founders to emerge. Doug, if you allow me to get a little bit on the personal level, you know, it's just very impressive what you've built yourself and uh, looking at your story, basically coming from nothing, going to the US, having to learn the language, having to learn the customs. And what personal trait, what skill was basically the most crucial for the self-made success? So when you said I built a lot of things myself, one of the things I do, we do at Sequoia, we make ample use of the we pronoun. I will tell you there is no company that I've been around where it was Doug's company. Whether you look at ServiceNow, it has my name on it, but Pat Grady sourced it. Conversely, there's other partners at Sequoia whose name is on them and somebody else has sourced it. So I would like to make sure you understand, I don't think I did very much myself. It was all done within the Sequoia platform that I've been very fortunate to be a part of. But to answer your question, what are the traits? I grew up in an extremely modest environment. 
Where I grew up in Genoa, it was by the port, places that you wouldn't even show up at night unless you were local, because you may not come out of there alive. So I came to America not because my father was a diplomat. There's nothing wrong with your father being a diplomat. I'm saying we came out for a better opportunity. I lived in a studio apartment with my mom and dad when we first got here. And so there's a sense of hunger. I was a little abused in high school. You know, those are the tender years, the formative years when you hope to meet girls. Well, I didn't meet that many girls. There was a bit of an edge. So you're hungry because you don't have a lot of means. You have a bit of an edge to you, but you are a good person because your parents taught you the right or wrong things in life. And so my edge, if you will, was I just didn't want to fail. I had a hunger that wouldn't end. Now, just to be truthful about it, there's another side to that hunger, though. It makes you a little bit insufferable. And so I jokingly say I was insufferable until about the age of 40 or 50 when I became sufferable because the drive to succeed, the, the drive to get ahead and the good luck for me was that I always knew and wanted to bring as many people for the ride. I can honestly say the success I've been lucky enough to achieve has never been on anybody else's expense. And so if I can pin it to a couple of things was drive, hunger, looking for a better opportunity and a little bit of an anger for what happened to an adolescent kid that couldn't speak the language everybody else kind of spoke for about three or four years. Those were the ingredients that helped create me early on. What still really keeps you hungry now, these days, after those achievements? We live in a world where change is accelerating. And we have a front row seat to people that want to take advantage or to participate in that change. We have to keep open minds because what you thought you knew yesterday won't allow you to understand what's happening by tomorrow. And so that trait of an open mind, that trait of being at the forefront is super exciting. In some ways, it equates to staying young. Being in a venture business is akin to making the decision that you want to stay young. And I think of that as the front end of the business. On the back end of that business, for us, 70% of our capital comes from endowments and foundation and charities and hospital groups. If you have a not cancer, you're going to go to the Cleveland Clinic or Mayo Clinic or maybe to Children's Hospital in Boston, where about half of the patients are international patients. And those are limited partners. People like me could not have gone to university if it wasn't for a scholarship, financial aid, a Cornell. I'm so happy that Cornell is a limited partner so they can provide financial aid for other Duglionis who are maybe 16 or 17 or 18 years of age right now. So I cannot think of a world where I'm at the forefront of excitement and it keeps me young. It makes me a better father, a better friend. On the back end, I help the world. And by the way, it's a good business for us. I mean, I don't want to sound like a Boy Scout and tell you that it's not a good business. It's a terrific business. And lastly, you know, I'm not a kid anymore. I'm 63 years old and I recognize I've got limited time in front of me and I find every interaction with founders to be precious. And I treat it almost as if it's my last. And so you take that combination and I would put the questions back. Why wouldn't you be excited? What is the secret sauce of Sequoia transitioning this success from generation to generation and staying on top for almost 50 years now, because I think there is no such other example. I need to go back to the exponential curve of increasing rate of change. If you live in that world, that drives everything. That drives your risk appetite. Taking risks becomes the least risky thing. The old adage of, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, meaning 
keep on going with what's working. By definition, that's going to put you out of business. Because the question I always ask myself, and we ask ourselves at Sequoia is, if we were a new firm, how would we put Sequoia out of business? How would we eat them alive? What would we do? And so we find that reinvention is the key, not sitting on your laurels. Because if you start looking at the IPOs, we've had, I don't know, 300 IPOs, 25% of the NASDAQ, 7 trillion of market cap that we've uh, had with founders. If we look at those stats too much, we're done. They're yesterday's stats. The all important stat is what is the brand new founder, the brand new company that we were lucky enough to partner with? Because we're in a latency business. When people ask me, how are things going? Oh, Sequoia had a great 2021, 2020. Look at the IPOs. Look at, and I said, no, Sequoia had a great 2010 to 2013. If you want to know if Sequoia had a great 2021, you're going to have to ask me in 2030, say. And that means also in our business, cancers can grow. You've got to get compensation right. You've got to get the we pronoun right. You have to be risk prone. Those are all the little things we have to do. We also have to understand, at least what we think, founders are the head of the dog. Limited partners are clients. Nonprofits are second. And if we do right by those two groups, we'll do right by Sequoia. And so we always reinvent ourselves. We always launch new programs. How can we help founders get an edge? Because we can't just say, oh, it's Sequoia. We're Sequoia. We have the brand. The moment we think like that, we are done or we are two years from being done. And we're always, I think, one, two, three investments from becoming a second tier firm. So we have a whole bunch of people that are nervous and insecure and want to make sure we always stand up. Also, it's the type of people that we recruit. We tend to recruit people that really want to get things done. And in fact, many of the traits we look for founders, we also look for in our partners. And so you have to get compensation, right? You have to get tactics, right? You have to have an appetite for change. And you have to make sure that when someone slows down or when the last group uh, leaves or the last leader leaves, that he doesn't stick around, take compensation like many firms. Oh, I'm leaving, but I want to be paid for the next 38 years. None of that. At Sequoia, the people that generate the returns are the people that get the benefit from those returns and so on. And uh, we have a culture at Sequoia. You, you're there, you execute, and at some point you get out of the way and let the next group of people do it. And what is the secret? I would bring it down to culture. Performance, teamwork, we, founders first, reinvention, those are the pillars of, of our culture. Like you mentioned, one source of reinvention is taking risks and sometimes risks are associated with learning things the hard way. Um, are there one or two examples where you really had to learn a lesson the hard way and that is maybe also part of one Sequoia success because you had to learn this lesson? I wish we had come to Europe one or two years earlier, just to be perfectly frank. We sat on a decision that we had made six, seven years earlier, as I remember, remember, we came to look twice. And when you come to look, somehow you think five years is enough time, not realizing in an increasing changing world, maybe you should have looked two years later. So that is a decision I wish would come a little earlier, a year or two. For some of us, I wish, at least in my case, I wish I'd been more risk prone and I dare to dream a little more. In my early years, I was comforted by order And it turns out that chaos and entropy are better ingredients for a startup. And so I wish I had let my mind 
go a little wilder on things. So those would be the two regrets. And again, you can't focus too much on the regrets. The venture business is a humbling type of business. It's almost like baseball. You fail a lot and you have to pick yourself up, especially in a market like this, when you see these valuations and you scratch your head, what do people see that I don't see? Are you really just missing something or is everybody following one another like sheep? There's many gut checks, as you know, because you're in a business. And so you always start checking yourself, uh, your fear, you have FOMO, your fear of missing out on the other side. You can't invest in every company you see like everybody seems to be doing. And we'll find out five years from now if there's any regrets there. But my biggest regret is not have had the courage to dream a little more. I've not been long on, on this earth, but even if I look at you, you've always been in a world where kind of the Western ecosystem was dominating the economy. So at the US and now suddenly you have China as well. You have a bipolar world where maybe in 10, 15 years, it's basically two very, very strong economic powers. And the question is, where do we find ourselves in Europe and, and how do you see this? I think of the world as one foot in front of the other and, and hustle, hustle meaning work. There's plenty of technology in Europe. There's plenty of engineers. I would advise everybody, follow the universities, follow the engineers. And there's no way for us to predict the imagination of a graduate's mind. There's just no way. And so I think we're wasting a lot of time if we think that. And it is clear we are heading into a world of uncertainty, while at the same time, we have seen incredible type of opportunities. You may not know this, but what's happening in Southeast Asia, in Indonesia, I mean, it's unbelievable. Like what's happening in India. Now, India is going through a terrible crisis with COVID. I mean, uh, it's just terrible. If you have money to donate, help India out as we have at Sequoia, because it's just a, an incredibly awful type of crisis. But India is growing like crazy. And I would say, let's stop forecasting where it's going to go. Just understand the underlying trends and try to meet with founders as early as possible, as quickly as possible as we do, and let them take you, us, as an industry, as a community, as a world, to the promised land. Speaking about all those opportunities and this positive momentum and, and spirit, I think when you joined Sequoia, you were maybe 30 years old. What one piece of advice would you give a 30-year-old duck in the current world that wants to become a successful tech entrepreneur? I would say, shut up, listen, and work on, especially since I spent most of my career in the B2B, to develop a prepared mind in an area of proficiency. I don't want to be an expert in any one thing because by definition, if I'm, if I'm an expert in one thing, I'm not strong in many others. I'd like to be highly proficient in one thing and have a broad view because in this ever-changing world, if you place your chits on one thing, you may wake up one day and find out that thing is no longer the thing. What is your take on the current market? Do you think there, there is a bubble somehow in, in some spaces? Are you more relaxed about it or what would be your kind of current current take? There clearly has to be a bubble because if there isn't a bubble, we're going to have 20,000 companies being worth $100 billion of market cap because some of these prices are so nutty. Now, we've looked at the stats, the number of $1 billion market cap company now in 2005, the number of 10, 50, 100, and clearly the opportunity has, has gotten much broader. You'd be shocked to learn that if you just look at the Dow Jones 30 
from 2000, 15 of the companies have changed hands. If you look at the 10 most valuable companies globally in the US, tech barely scratched the service in 2000. Now it's mostly, if not all, tech companies. I think there's only one that's not a tech company, Saudi Aramco. And uh, so even though everything is technology, if you are a Fortune 500 and you don't become a technology company, you're going to be out of business. We get it. Everybody gets it. And uh, where we invested tech being tech, now we invest in every market segment because of tech infiltrating every market segment. Not every company is going to be worth you know $10 billion and above. So we're clearly in a bubble. Every nook and cranny is taken. We can do a seed whatever price within the moment it's announced, somebody will launch a series A thinking that we know something about that company. We have, you know, somehow we figured it out. And when we do a series A, you do 2 million in revenues. There's a billion dollar preterm sheet. Clearly when you invest like that, when you're momentum investing, it is only going to serve you well during the momentum days. At some point, you know, I know, we all know that things cannot be going up and to the right. We have been in a bull market for 13 years. We're coming out of COVID. We're expecting a healthy economy globally. Jack, thank you so much for sharing those insights and also some of those very personal uh, stories. It was really great speaking to you. Appreciate you taking the time and hopefully there will be a lot of uh, more exciting deals we can do together. Thank you thank so you much. Thank you for having me. Thank you very much.